Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field. And then together we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere. And so are we. This week, we're learning how institutions are designing equity into their decision-making process. I'll be joined by Lindsey Graff, a senior campus planner at DLR Group, a global integrated design firm with a core practice in architecture, engineering, interiors, and planning. And later on, we'll chat with Melissa Soto, program planner at California State University, Long Beach. Together, they will share how the team at DLR Group worked to capture the realities facing institutions nationwide during the pandemic by talking to people, talking to students, talking to faculty. But before we dive in, I wanted to recognize our three most recent Design Museum members. So big thank you to Rowan Hardyall, who is an individual member, Palema Ellis, another individual, and the entire college of Boston College is now a member of Design Museum Everywhere. So thank you to Chokti and Sunan for making that happen with us. And thank you, Boston College. We're so excited to have you involved. Big thanks to all our members. Your support and involvement makes what we do at the museum possible. So if you're interested in learning more about membership, whether you're an individual, a school, a company, visit our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on membership. And with that, on to this week's topic. When the pandemic uprooted students and faculty in spring 2020, DLR group team members were immediately inspired to act. They conducted hundreds of personal conversations to capture the realities facing institutions nationwide. Those conversations are continuing to help clients navigate the return to campus this fall and beyond. I'm joined by my guest co-host this week, Lindsay Graff. Lindsay is a campus planner at DLR Group, working with colleges and universities nationwide to envision a physical campus environment that reflects the values and mission of each unique institution. Lindsay is experienced in developing whole campus plans, sustainability plans, and strategic visions for her clients. Her work involves facilitating user groups and campus and community engagement to define goals and objectives, prioritize planning solutions, and encourage participatory decision-making. Lindsay's designs strive to make a difference. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sam. So excited to be here and share my story. Yeah, thank you. I want to learn what galvanized some of this work that you're all doing to like learn insights sort of at the start of the pandemic. So let's go back to those early stages and what kind of issues were you seeing at play? Yeah. When we were in March 2020, we had so many projects going on with our great clients. And when everybody had to go home, this was such a huge pivot for higher education. So a lot of times when we think about especially these larger universities or systems, they are so bureaucratic and it's really hard to create change. And so all of a sudden, everyone was at home. Everyone was doing online learning. And we were just calling really to, on clients just to check in and say, hey, how are you guys doing? Yeah, hi. <laughs> how, yeah, how's it going? <laughs> um, and what we realized very quickly is that we had an opportunity to actually help them connect the dots because this had happened so quickly. They were looking to see what are other institutions doing that is helping them get through this. And so so we at DLR Group, um, specifically in our higher education practice, all of our projects are embedded with what we call 360 degree engagement, which is 
hey, if we're going to do a project on your campus, we want to talk to everyone, students, faculty, staff, community. So our Evolution of Campus research project as it was born is really our 360-degree engagement at a huge scale. And really early on, it was just about helping folks connect the dots. So we would interview them, we would put on presentations to share the results, and we'd also connect them together so that they were actually able to learn from each other, which was excellent. Can you talk a bit about the equity challenges? I mean, I think we've seen, right, there was many, many pre-existing equity challenges that COVID just sort of really amplified and made it easier for people maybe who look like me to see uh, and, and hopefully to respond to. How did that play into this research? Yeah, um, you're exactly right. Um, so we knew that many of these equity challenges and issues existed uh, before the pandemic, but it really amplified them. And there was a sense of urgency that was created to solve them kind of all at once because there were folks that needed to continue on with academics that physically or kind of technologically weren't able to. A couple of the things that we saw early on was just this massive need for technology. And so, you know, one of the things that we think about as campus planners, right, and we're always thinking about the physical environment, but all of a sudden that wasn't an option, right? You weren't on campus. And most of most of our campuses, you weren't even allowed on campus. But how do you continue learning and teaching. And so when we start to think about the, you know, the campus environment now, we have to think about the, that virtual environment that so many students rely on. And it was amazing to, to hear stories about how many students rely on the physical campus environment for their technology needs, not only just for their education, but they don't have access to Wi-Fi at home or good Wi-Fi at home or consistent Wi-Fi, especially in some of our rural areas. They were driving to campus to use computers for everything. And so it was really you know, interesting to see that strategies that colleges and universities took to hand out laptops and create Wi-Fi areas in parking structures and, you know, just being able to loan out laptops, not only to students. That's one of the things that we learned and we are very, you know, we think it's important to share. It's that faculty and staff as well, they don't necessarily have access to technology and computers at home and Wi-Fi. And so, you know, thinking about your investment into what you would say is your infrastructure, we really got a, a new lesson in that. I'm always curious for big research projects like this. Like clearly you've like made community and it's a, a value for your clients. Have you sort of captured or documented the findings in any interesting ways? I always love seeing that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we um, started in March 2020 with round one. We did round two the following fall semester. So some people were back on campus, some people weren't, some people were hybrid, and it was just an opportunity to check in with the same campuses. And we added many, many more. And then now we're in round three. So we're taking a deep dive focus into three topics. How campuses are using space differently on campus, how science and technology spaces are emerging, and then um, paths to net zero, which is interesting. So we're kind of moving a little bit beyond the pandemic, 
but we're over 300 institutions at this point that we've spoken to, and it's growing like every day. Um, we actually put everything into a public Xero site. So um, as we collect the information, um, that can all be shared out again as um, a way to storytell and just share information amongst uh, our clients and other institutions that we've had the opportunity to work with. Oh, I love that. How do you translate this into sort of the future campus plan, right? Maybe making some assumptions that COVID will likely dwindle, but there might still be something. What have you learned that you're going to take into that future planning in campuses? Yeah. Well, I will say one of the things that we learned is just the importance of getting voices heard. We always knew that was important, especially as part of our, like I said, our 360 degree engagement process. But really being able to ask the right questions is something that I learned as part of this process. So it's not about just asking folks, hey, what are the spaces on campus that you like or maybe you don't like? Or what are your ideas for a new campus? We actually want to dig a little bit deeper because we were really able to understand not just how people use the campus each day, but what the campus means for them in their daily lives. So, you know, asking folks, where on campus do you feel safe or comfortable or frustrated or healthy? Those are the things that we really want to learn about in order to plan for the future. And being able to do that over the past um, year with some of the clients that we're working with now, it's been really fulfilling because it elevates our conversations to a place that we typically weren't having before. And everybody is more open to re really reimagining what the campus is and kind of capitalizing on the changes. Because again, as we said, higher education really wasn't quick to move. Right. <laughs> and so now that everybody has been you know, off campus or kind of slowly getting back to campus for the last 16 months, it's like, what can we do to, what can we do to capitalize on the fact that we are ripe for change and we need it? So it's been a really exciting time to, to plan. Do you see campuses as, you know, because some of this learning can be over video and it's actually maybe better over video that is campus where you go for community? Is it where you go for technology, all the above? Like, what do I go to campus for, you know, now? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we um, asked is, hey, how do students like to receive their education and how do faculty like to deliver it? And we also asked faculty, how do you think your students do best? Because those answers aren't always the right. same. <laughs> and so when we compared those three <laughs> questions together, it was interesting. Students really like to be on campus for things that they work on together. So that could be studying together or doing labs or active learning, project-based learning. They don't necessarily want to go to campus for the lectures, kind of that passive time. I will say the trend in higher education is to do more active learning. So that's great. So, you know, in terms of space, we're rethinking about the lecture hall. Do we need as many as we had before? We can do that online. And the time that you spend on campus should be working together, not listening to one person stand in the front and talk. So, you know, things like active learning, being in the library, being together for clubs and intramurals, that's all really still very important for students. They wanted to get back to campus. That was loud and clear. But for the things that they could be um, creating that their own community to do. So clearly pandemic, you know, a lot of this stuff is on lockdown. You're kind of, you know, these campuses and universities are sort of in survival mode. Is it difficult to move some of these notions into reality? 
Is there a big pause? Where are you seeing sort of like the thread of this work going in terms of actually designing and planning campuses? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say it's a uh, it was a pretty um, even split between um, campuses, colleges, universities that were able to continue the work through the pandemic. You know, some campuses, they just couldn't um, commit to continuing their planning. So a lot of projects went on hold. A lot of it is because they really wanted to do this deep engagement with the campus in person. That was the culture of their campus. And we wanted to respect that. A lot of those projects are starting up again now that folks are coming back. And it's kind of a moment of celebration. Yes, we took a pause, but here we are together. And let's pick this back up because we're planning for the future. And the future looks a lot different now than when we started um, these planning processes. Other clients were able to keep going. And it was really interesting to be able to open up a whole host of new tools. So we started doing digital engagement. So we were on Zoom and using tools like Mural, which is an interactive whiteboard, to be able to be still collaborative and active in our workshops and um, even kind of teaching some faculty and staff about how to use some of these digital tools. And that was a great experience too, but their their culture really supported that. And so it was just being respectful about um, where kind of meeting people where they were and understanding that, you know what, either way we're going to finish and we want it to be the best plan for you. We're picking all those projects up now, so we're super busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that's super cool and, and so smart to do that research and sounds like y'all are doing it the right way and sharing it out. So that's, I mean, it's so awesome. So kudos and thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, thanks. Listeners, to see more of Lindsay's work, visit dlrgroup.com. And Lindsay, like I said, stick around and we'll bring Melissa Soto into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. And we're back. We're joined by our special guest, Melissa Soto. Melissa is a program planner at California State University, Long Beach, a minority majority four-year public university. She manages long-range campus plans, such as the Campus 2035 Master Plan Update, Housing Strategic Development Plan, and the Micro Mobility Plan. Her passion is campus community and stakeholder outreach to gain vital input for well-informed plans and projects that work towards equity in the built environment. Melissa's designs towards equity in the built environment for the well-deserving students of CSULB. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm psyched to learn more about everything that you two have worked on together. I'm curious to start, like, how are things on campus right now? 
Things on our on campus, I would say, you know, I told a colleague this the other day that nature is healing. Um, <laughs> right. There are students back on campus. Uh, we've recently opened up a brand new housing project, uh, 475 beds, and we haven't built new housing on campus in over 30 years. Wow. And on uh, opening day or the day, the weekend that students were moving in with their parents, I had to like kind of go check it out and see what was going on. And it was just so heartwarming to see them coming back. And uh, the first day that students were back, I was driving around in our little cart and I saw a group of students in the lawn playing hacky sack. Oh, and I took a photo and I sent it heart. to my coworker and with just the caption, nature is healing. <laughs> and also I did not know that uh, Gen Z knows about hacky sack, but they do. I'm I'm here to report that it's still very much a college oh, I'm thing. So, happy so about that. it's just really great to have uh, some students on campus um, overhearing those conversations again about it's the same stuff, you know, like stressed out about a test, um, heading to the rec center to work out and just different events that uh, ASI is putting on. It's just it's fabulous to see. That's awesome. Not that I want to do this, but I think it's important to go back in the way back machine and think about when the pandemic first started. So yes, nature is healing. But I'm curious what sort of like the initial response was like on campus. Like what were some of the issues that you were seeing and highlighting at the time? Well, actually, our uh, university and the CSU, the California State University system in general, was one of the first to make the move and say very quickly, we are going to go online. Like campus is closed until further notice. Um, and I think that they were very much leaders in that and kind of what we do tends to follow with the rest of the system and, and even the rest of the country. So as an employee, um, you know, just everyone was kind of freaking out. We didn't know what was going on. It was really nice to be able to just make that switch. And of course, no one knew how long it was going to last. <laughs> um, no one could have foreseen. But I what I observed, particularly with students, is that our campus was able to jump into action really quickly with the the bare necessities that they would need to continue to take classes. So um, handing out laptops, handing out Wi-Fi hotspots for a lot of students who didn't have Wi-Fi at home or, or very strong connections, a lot of online tech support for uh, faculty and staff. And it seemed to all happen very quickly. Like I didn't even have a uh, webcam or a microphone. I let our, our manager know about it and I had it within a week. So it was really great to see that. Um, so that was sort of the initial response. And then as things, as time went on and we realized the greater need, and this was going to last for a long time. We were able to get some more support through federal funds. We did qualify for uh, her funding because of the size of our university, but also the student population that we have. And again, they were really great about just getting all of this aid out to our students. So in terms of cash infusions, <laughs> um, and again, more equipment, um, we added a ton of new Wi-Fi uh, spots on campus. So even though our campus buildings were closed, we have the advantage of a really great Southern California climate year round. So students were able to come on campus and be in our outdoor seating spaces and have a really good Wi-Fi connection as well. Wi-Fi in the parking structures. I mean, we were just all making it up as we were going along. But just, you know, I was really impressed and also heartened by the willingness of everyone to just jump in and just do something. It was like, well, we don't know if this is going to work or if this is helpful, but it's everyone wanted to do something. I'm curious how you got connected with Lindsay and DLR Group uh, and what that looked like. 
So I was a project manager, or still am the project manager for our uh, campus master plan update. So just like any large city, every university does a comprehensive master plan. Our first one was done in 1965, I want to say, um, by a really well-known architect, uh, Edward Killingsworth. Um, and his work can be seen still all over campus in really, really great mid-century modern design. And he and his uh, colleague, landscape architect Ed Lavelle, really worked in tandem to design the landscape so that it you know, really shaped and molded in with all of the signature buildings that we have on campus. And so our campus is quite unique in that a lot of that original plan is still in place on campus today. But moving forward, you know, it's like, how are we going to evolve and optimize the spaces that we have now? We knew that we didn't want to do a massive growth uh, plan, um, but how does our campus, how can we shape our campus to really reflect the ideas um, and the needs of students today? So uh, Dee Lindsay is the um, project manager for the plan on DLR side. And when she and her team came in for the interview, I just was like, yes, absolutely. This is the person that I want to work with every day for the next two years that it's been. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We're both like honorary employees for, you know, each other's uh, teams. And I think, you know, she and I, we have a very similar um, educational and like planning and, and architectural background. We're almost exactly the same age. We just spoke the same language and we were, and I just knew that I needed a really energetic counterpart um, to be a part of this plan because I wanted it in particular to be the most inclusive and engaged plan that we had done on campus. Our previous one was done in 2008. It's maybe 40 pages long, which is extremely short for a master plan. It functions very well. It says these are the buildings that have issues and these are the ones we're going to rebuild. And here's a touch on a tiny little bit on, on trees. and But there wasn't a single voice of anybody in the entire plan. I mean, there wasn't a voice from a student. I mean, it was so generic. And when I had read that, I was like, no, I want the space needs to be shaped by the people who use it and live it every day. And the only way to do that is to ask people. <laughs> it's It's wild how much planning I see done kind of you know, super top down. You have these extremely talented, very intelligent, very well-meaning architects and planners and, and people making plans and they have great ideas. They really do. But you can only know which of those are going to work until you meet the users. The users are the experts. The users know best and they have a lot of information, a lot of issues, a lot of problems that you couldn't even imagine. So you absolutely need to talk to them first before you get any of your planning done. What is a master plan? Like, what does it look like? How do you, do you use it every day? Well, a fun fact, it's a German metal rock band. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, so a master plan, it's a it's really a tool for any institution to use that takes a look at where do we want to move uh, forward to in the future. So a lot of times for a college or a university, we're doing a physical campus master plan um, kind of at the end of a strategic planning process. So at CSU Long Beach, they were coming off of their Beach 2030 um, strategic plan. And so they're defining as part of that process, who do we want to be as an institution, as a university? And the, and the campus master plan, that is the physical manifestation of 
what that strategic vision is. So in order to get to where we want to be, things may have to change on campus. And so we really get the opportunity to uh, create change from that, that physical environment perspective. Awesome. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Melissa, could you share, like, how did you connect with students around this planning process? Like what that looked like? Absolutely. So we had to do it in multiple different ways. So we did start the plan in fall of 2019. So, uh, prior to COVID and we had all these great ideas and we were going to set up in different places on campus to, uh, you know, do what I call intercept interviews, just literally, hey, come talk to me about this. And then have, you know, boards with maps saying, where do you park on campus? What's your route like um, to your, the main buildings that you go to? Which, which places on campus do you eat? Like, where's your favorite place to be quiet? Um, you know, a lot of that like sort of physical put something on a board and, and kind of taking input that way. Um, but we obviously really, really uh, quickly had to pivot once everyone was in lockdown and we were able to do that largely the same type of uh, information gathering, but virtually. Um, and so, again, we had to do it in so many different ways. So it was my goal. I want to engage 20 percent of the campus community in this plan in some way. So, you know, obviously this is thousands of people. We weren't going to physically talk to thousands of people, but between um, a really large student survey uh, that we sent out, kind of intimate focus groups, we were able to do some listening sessions prior to COVID. And what else did we do, Lindsay? Yeah. So we had over 20 different focus groups and those focus groups um, range from topics of sustainability on campus, the student government fraternities and sororities, but we even talked to the folks at Disability Services. And it was really just about doing this deep listening about how do you use the campus each day and what are you experiencing that's great and that's not so great. And through that deep listening, we were actually able to define what we use as the goals and the principles of the plan. And so, you know, that in-person engagement paired with the survey, I think we're at over 5,000 folks at this point, which is great. Was it hard to get students engaged in this or were they sort of like, hey, this actually impacts me? So the challenge of being a planner, I always tell people that planners are storytellers and also salespeople, unfortunately. <laughs> so it's really about cutting out all of the nomenclature and just being like, Instead of being like, you know, planning this environment, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no. Hey, when you're on campus, like, what's the coolest place to do this? Or when you're on campus, where do you feel more stressed out? So it's really like, it's, I firmly believe that literally every person on this planet is a planner. They just don't know it and they don't have the vocabulary for it. But everybody knows what they like and dislike about a space. Everybody knows, um, you know, they learn their commute whether it's walking or bus or driving, the best way, because they know at this certain time, this area gets backed up. Like everyone has this planning knowledge um, in the way that they interact with their environment. They might not just have a language or an outlet to kind of talk about it. So as planners, we need to be able to tell the story of, of what we're trying to achieve. And then once we get the plan that we think is really great and is going to be successful, then we really have to sell it to people. And so again, we do that through really great graphics and plans and, you know, just, and this is how it could be. It's a lot of visioning because if you ask people, how can we make this better? Or what does the, the future of this look like? People usually come up with a totally blank stare, <laughs> you know, or they'll point to 
immediate things or small things like, well, the air conditioner is always broke or like, you know, this door squeaks. And that's really what we're not, not what we're trying to get at. So really it's more like, how do you want to feel? How does this space make you feel? How could you change it? What do you want to be able to do in this space? Like what, what kind of activities do you need to do during your day? So it's about asking those kinds of questions. And then we the experts, That's right. <laughs> the other experts, the professionals, we go back and say, okay, this is what we're hearing. And we think this is the type of space that will help facilitate that. And so I think, again, it's it's just really about kind of distilling the ideas down to an individual and their personal experience with a space um, in order to get the information that we need to create it. To piggyback on something you said, when you ask open-ended questions, you typically get what I call are the microwaves or the Mars answers. So on so many campuses, when we say, hey, what do you need more of? We like to think it's like study space, but like 80% of the answers are always microwaves yeah, <laughs> to heat my food. To heat up my lunch. So that's great. It's good knowledge to know, but it's not necessarily part of the vision of the campus. Um, or on the other end, we'll hear some Mars-like answers, right? Like we need a lazy river around the whole campus. <laughs> so yeah, so it's really important when you're asking these questions to be more direct, as Melissa said, or else you're going to end up with microwaves and Mars. And not a lot of that's helpful. <laughs> that really leads me, that gets me thinking about the follow-up focus groups that we did. So we did all of this outreach in twenty late 2019. Um, and early 2020. We took a six-month pause in early 2020 to kind of figure out, I mean, this is when things were really going off. We're like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how long this is going to last. And then last fall, uh, we picked it back up again. And we said, we got all this information pre-COVID. As we're still in the middle of our master plan, plan process, we need to be able to go back and verify, is this still true? Like based on people's experiences at home, trying to to work and learn at home, and we can't predict the future, but what are some things that we should be thinking about? We, we know that this world event has been significant enough to change things. Um, so we, we would be doing a disservice to the plan if we just kind of continued as if this whole thing didn't happen. So we actually spoke to 200 people, so 100 students. 50 staff and 50 faculty. And we did them in groups of 10. And obviously, it's always my favorite to talk to the students. And they were extremely honest and vulnerable and open. I was very, I mean, just personally really touched by a lot of their stories. And it was really getting from them how they were feeling and how they were experiencing being at home for a year. They talked a lot about just feeling isolated, about feeling frustrated because, you know, they couldn't just reach out to a peer or a friend, you know, just someone in class next to you. Like, hey, did you get that? They didn't have that. Um, there are some people who felt, you know, some kind of shame around their their background, their Zoom background. And that's why they always had their camera off or they didn't want to speak up and turn their their microphone on because there's just TV and there's sirens and there's crazy things going on in the background. And so they weren't able to focus. And really what we gleaned from those focus groups was that place will always be extremely important. The campus as a place is vital. There will always be a need for it. So of course, moving forward, we might do a hybrid approach on uh, the way that we teach, the way that we offer services, but there will never not be a need for the physical campus. The physical campus 
I feel really offers a safe space in so many ways to our students. You know, COVID didn't exist by itself in in the great year of our Lord 2020. We also had Black Lives Matter protests. Um, We had a lot of immigration protests and things going on prior to that. And all of those things affected our students. Our, our, our campus president came out and said, you know, when there was threats that, that they were going to send ICE into campuses and round up, you know, students or just anybody who was not here legally, she went up and said, no, not on this campus. As long as you are within the bounds of this university, no one will touch you. You are fine. And that's massive. Like that is so massive. Um, Again, when it comes to mental wellness, our campus is beautiful. It's 322 acres. As I mentioned, it has a very well planned out um, and integrated park like setting on our campus. We always say our campus is like a park. It's the first thing that people always comment about our our campus is how beautiful it is. Grass, trees, water features. We have a Japanese garden on campus. And students were shut up at home and didn't have a respite, you know, a place to go to just get a couple of moments outside. We heard the same thing from our, our faculty and staff as well. So again, the safe space of being on campus from social thing, crazy social things that are going on, from pandemics, um, and just the need to be outside, you know, it's a, it's a very important place. And I don't think that myself or anyone else really understood just how important the place is until it gets taken away. I think one of the things that was interesting, as Melissa said, is just being able to pause in the middle of our kind of long-term planning and talk with people about things that have been happening with them over the past 14 months and what they would like to see when they returned back to campus. So, um, you know, I guess my question for Melissa is, what have you implemented or starting to implement on campus that's a result of some of those focus groups? So are there small projects or small initiatives that are happening um, right now that may be as a direct impact of some of the conversations that we had? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I think there's two examples. One um, are outdoor classrooms. So it's something that we've talked about for years and we never actually did anything with it. So I was like, wouldn't that be great to have outdoor classrooms? You know, But what is that? Like essentially when you break it down to its parts, what does an outdoor classroom look like? Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we were the recipient of uh, quite a bit of her f- uh, funds um, from the government. And so we turned a bunch of that into um, 10 outdoor classrooms that we will be building in the spring. And we just identified some kind of um, underutilized spaces on campus that were in nice parts of campus, just open space, things, you know, we had identified maybe we'll put some seating out there, but we just never really did it. And we figured what are the most important things that we need? We need seating and we need shade. Very, very important on our campus to have shade. Um, and we just need some kind of a, um, a teaching wall. So no AV, um, you know, nothing to project, but just some kind of like a whiteboard or a chalkboard or something that for whatever professor wanted to go out there, they just had something that they could use. All the furniture is going to be reconfigurable. Um, and it's there's just like a different variety of, of seating options. and they are reservable by anyone who wants to use them. And um, so if a professor says, you know, they, they won't have their whole class scheduled there. But if they say, you know what, next week's lecture, this one seems like it's just mostly a conversation. Let's have it outside. They can reserve uh, the space for that. So that's really exciting. Um, as I mentioned, we 
had been talking about doing this for such a long time. And we got this influx of, of funds and we said, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. So I'm really looking forward to those. And the other thing that we've done is really um, going back to the housing project that I mentioned. When we were planning the building, we said, what is the most important part about living on campus? And, you know, really for student success, there's tons of studies that show that students who make really good connections with their peers very early on in their college education are uh, more successful throughout. You need to have your buddies. You need to have your friends. Um, I personally lived on campus my freshman year in college. Um, you know, that was like 20 years ago, and I'm still on a daily group chat with three other girls that I lived with in the dorms like that first year. Like we're still such good friends. Um, and it was really integral to me feeling like I belonged at my university. So when we were designing the building, we said, you know, we're not going to do crazy apartments. We're not going to do all this fancy, as, as Lindsay mentioned, you know, the students would love the lazy river, but we're not doing that. Um, and we just did the traditional double loaded corridor. The double rooms are actually fairly small. And we did that on purpose because we want the students to come out of their rooms. We want them to get out. And so every pod, what we're calling it, um, there's a 36 students to a pod and they have a shared kitchen, multiple different study rooms or like little study booths that they can be in. And so there's these different levels of community that can be built. So with your pod mates, um, with your floor, you know, with your wing. Um, and so there's 475 students in that new building that have come back to campus, or this is their first time on campus, and they're instantly with 35 other people, at least in their pod, that maybe they won't be best friends with, but they live intimately with and see them every day. And they do feel like they belong to something. And with all of the, you know, the challenges that they um, face just going to school here, having that kind of support, we believe, is really intrinsic to their success. 31% of our students are actually first-generation students, which is really high. They don't have a model of what, how to navigate college you know, they don't have an older sister, a cousin, their parents who went to college and said, this is kind of what you need to do. They're just going into it totally blind. And I guess they'll figure this out. So who better than with all of your peers to figure it out together? So um, I will say that we in the housing, the outdoor classrooms, additional study spaces that we're trying to open up on campus, anything that gets students together is really our focus. Um, obviously, you know, socially distant. Everyone's still really good about wearing their masks and all that. But really, it's about they've been at home for so long, isolated. And when they're here, they're able to have encounters with with other students and to have some of that idea share while they're here. To wrap up, I'm curious if you could both sort of like share advice with your previous selves <laughs> before you did this work. So, Lindsay, like what advice would you give to designers and planners who are thinking like, how do I make room for this type of research in my process? Again, thinking about how, just how impactful it can be. Yeah. I think for me, what we always kind of assumed um, is that we needed to physically be there on campus. And that was the only way that we could engage with people. And so as a planner who works nationally, I was on a plane almost every week flying around to different colleges and universities. And I loved doing that. But I will say, for ourselves as well as you know architects and planners having to switch to digital platforms to communicate with our clients it's been really helpful because we are actually more accessible if you let us 
um, engage with you digitally. And so, um, again, we were actually able to do more engagement hear more voices and get more ideas and thoughts from students and faculty and staff actually because we were digital, um, which was great. It was a really important part of the process. So, you know, I think now we're always asking clients and again, it's, it depends on what's culturally okay for the, for the institution, but we're always saying, Hey, there is this other opportunity to let us do this digitally. And sometimes it's actually just as good or better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say too, along the same lines is is the advice I would give to anyone embarking on on a plan or a project uh, or a design that that needs a lot of input. Just when you think you have enough input, go do more. You have not heard everything. There's always something new to be learned. As I mentioned, thirty seven thousand different experiences on this campus. We tried to engage with twenty percent. There's still how many different stories that, you know, we didn't get. And of course, your plan can't be all inclusive and serve every single person's need. But what I'm saying is people's ideas, people telling you how they want to experience a space is the most important thing that you prep work that you can do in any design. And if you do not get that feedback, your design's going to fall flat. Your plan's going to fall flat because it does not reflect the people who are using it. It's as simple as that. We don't we don't build spaces for anyone else but humans. <laughs> so, unless unless you're, you know, involving as many humans as possible um and having them influence the work that you do, um it's just not going to be it's just not going to be as as good as it can be. So, talk to everyone. And then talk to their mom and then talk to their neighbor. <laughs> I love that. That's a great place to end on. Melissa, thank you so much for being here and sharing your experience. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. Always a pleasure. Listeners, to see more of Melissa's work, check out Cal State University Long Beach's website. It's at csulb.edu. Now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design. These are our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. Listeners, I have another video game that has impacted me <laughs> meaningfully. Uh, this game is so cool. It's called Unsighted and it's on a number of platforms, Steam, uh, PlayStation, but I'm playing it on the Nintendo Switch. It is like a retro adventure game it's like the pixel art is incredible and beautiful. I haven't seen pixel art this good in many years. Uh, this was developed by Studio Pixel Punk, which I believe is two women in Brazil. I'm always amazed that like two people can create like this like 100 hour video game. Uh, and it was published by Humble Games. Basically, you are a character named Alma, who is an android and you awake in this world of androids, but they're all like kind of running out of the substance that like keeps them alive. And so it's sad, but you can't keep everyone alive. You're like, you're running around the world, like looking for this substance that keeps them alive, but there's just not enough time for everyone. And so there are these moments where it's like such and such android, you know, has now perished. And you're like, no, I, I needed that, that person to help me win the game. So there's definitely a time component, but basically you're running around hacking and slashing you've got a sword you've got other like ranged weapons like a boomerang 
and um, fighting monsters, classic, you know, video game. And it's it's a lot of fun. You kind of get lost in the the dialogue and the writing. Also, you know, video games may not be known for writing, but this one was written really well. So check out Unsighted. It's on, like I said, a bunch of platforms and uh, it was very accessible. It was only 20 bucks. So yeah, that's mine. Lindsay, over to you. All right, we're gonna take a big left turn from the video game. <laughs> Yeah, so this is something that I've been thinking about a lot because I've been talking about it with so many clients, which are rain gardens. So one of the things that we are constantly working with clients around are their sustainability goals. And uh, working with a lot of clients and universities in campuses in Southern California, we know that water goals are so important to them. Um, but when we think about you know your traditional collegiate campus, it could be turfed and beautiful grassy quads. And so what we're really trying to share with clients is you can create rain gardens that are just as beautiful and iconic, but are helping uh, you move the needle toward your sustainability goals. So I have been Googling and taking pictures and visiting campuses, and I'm just obsessed with rain gardens these days. I can't tell you how many PowerPoints that I've made about rain gardens. And so, um, so that's been mine because I've just seen so many amazing examples out there in the world. So, oh, awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I'll check some of those out. Yeah, no problem. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, I'd love to hear it and share it on the show. You can tweet it to me at Sam Aquilano. Lindsay, thanks so much for being here. I really love this conversation. You're clearly so passionate about this, really came through. So, thank you. Thanks so much, Sam. It's been such a fun conversation. That's our show. Again, I want to thank Lindsay Graff and Melissa Soto for joining us. And thank you all for listening. Gosh, I love that conversation. We'll post links to the resources and articles we discussed today on our episode page. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast in the menu there. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. You can search us out there. We also have an awesome weekly email newsletter so you can learn all about what's coming up from the Design Museum. It's right to your inbox. And you can sign up for that on the bottom of our webpage. So just scroll all the way down. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design Is Everywhere. We just learned from Lindsay that she's a subscriber. That's great. Thanks, Lindsay. So you can subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts, your ratings and reviews really help us. So check those out, you know, leave a five star, leave a little note that helps us reach more people so we can talk about and chat about the transformative power of design each week. We just so appreciate your support. So thank you. This episode was written, edited and produced by Amor Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here and we'll talk again next week. <laughs>